heart, you have brought all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our hearts. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, Confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your David's servant, your servant David, will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. All right, so like I said, we have David going into his prayer room, and just to remind you, last week we talked about the establishment of the Davidic covenant that takes place in the first half of 2 Samuel 7. Last week, uh, the, David was sitting around drinking coffee with Nathan the prophet, and Nathan was sitting there, and David was thinking, I don't have anything to do. Everybody's at ease. This is such a good time in the kingdom. I think I will build a house for the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant is, is in a tent, and I'm dwelling in a house of cedar. That doesn't seem right. And Nathan the prophet said, you do as you see fit. But later that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet, and in a shocking turn said to Nathan, you go tell David, you're not going to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build you a house. So not only is David not going to build a house, but God is going to make a dynasty for David. The big promise comes in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And we said last week too that this promise is actually vital for the rest of scripture. This is a massive promise that is important for us today is as important as it is for us today as, as for us today as it was for David. When, when the angel comes to announce uh, the birth of Jesus to Mary, the angel says, he will be great and will be called the son of most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. In Romans chapter 1 verse 4, the Apostle Paul says he was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we celebrate Christmas and the birth of our Lord, we are celebrating the Davidic covenant. When we celebrate Easter and the resurrection of our Lord, we are celebrating the Davidic covenant being, being made real by God. And one day... In heaven, when we celebrate the return of the Lord, 
we will be celebrating this covenant that begins all the way back 3,000 years ago in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So, we are a people of faith, and we are gathered here together along with the saints of old and with the saints around the world standing on these promises. And so here's, here's where I want to start this morning, and I want you to understand this. To have faith means that we believe the things that have happened, that God has told us about, and then we believe God's promises about the things that are going to happen, and we live accordingly. That's what it means to have faith, right? We trust what the Word of God has told us has happened, we trust in what God has promised will happen, and we live our lives accordingly. So, for instance, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to forgive me of my sins. I believe what happened in the past. I believe that he is going to come again and that he is going to reign as king on this earth. And I live in light of those promises. And so I want to encourage you once again as we begin this chapter, as we finish off this great chapter of promise, that we at Hope Bible Church, we want to be a people who stand on God's word. And I would say we need to understand these promises more than ever. So we finished off our passage last week. It says, in accordance with all these things, in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan takes the word back to David. And then in verse 18, as we begin our passage this week, it says, then David went in and sat before the Lord. And I don't think I'm reading too much into that little word then to say that David immediately got up and he went to talk to God. That was his very first impulse. And so it's David's prayer that we are looking at this morning. So like I said, we are just going to consider, I'm going to walk kind of through the passage in no particular order and just talk about some things this morning that I believe we can learn from this prayer. Number one, let's look at the posture of David's prayer in verses 18 through 21. I already read to you verse 18, then David went in and sat before the Lord. Interestingly, this is the only time in the Bible where someone is said to sit and pray. So most likely, David goes in before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we've talked about the Ark a lot in our time in Samuel, both in 1 Samuel and now in 2 Samuel, and all the regulations about who can look at the Ark and who can touch the Ark, and all of that was very real, but we've also seen that clearly there are some servants of the Lord who get special access to the ark. So normally it's only the high priest who comes in once a year to put the blood on the mercy seat, but we, we read about Moses who seems to be able to go right to the ark. We see little Samuel in 1 Samuel 3 sleeping next to the ark in the tabernacle, and here it's, it's probably the case that David, being the chosen servant of God that he was, went in and sat before the ark. And I, write, I remind you often, I prayed in our prayer this morning, I like to remind you that we have these glories of the new covenant that we take for granted, but, but one of them is that we can just come boldly right into the presence of Almighty God. We get to come right before God because we are covered in the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so there are times when we rush into His presence, right? There are times when, like Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king, we have something important and we have to utter a short prayer of, Lord, help me, as we go into a, a situation. But there are other times 
when we should come in and sit before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, how often do you sit in the Father's presence? When was the last time that you came to him and just sat in thankfulness for his mercy and his grace toward you? Look at David's attitude here as he sits before the Lord. He says, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You could say that David's entrance into the presence of the Lord begins with surprise. Who am I, O Lord? I, I did not expect this. David knows that he is where he is because God brought him there. Have you ever received something that you didn't expect? Some gift that you didn't expect? When, uh, in January of 2008, Erica and I were living in the northwest suburbs of Chicago in Arlington Heights. We had two children. Lucy was two. Harry was about five months old. And we got a knock at the door. We had a little tiny house. Uh, it was cold. It was snowing. And there, were some, some, uh, there was an older couple at the door. They were very dear to us. They had become our friends. We actually lived with them for a time when we first moved to the Chicago area until we could find a house. And we asked them to come in, but it was clear they didn't want to stay long. But they just, they sort of walked into the, the front part of our house, and they, there was a minivan sitting in the driveway. And he handed me the keys, and he said, that, that van is for you. We're giving this to you. This was our first minivan. We've since had lots of minivans. Uh, but we took our, we, we, we jumped into the world of minivans unexpectedly that evening. And needless to say, we were absolutely overwhelmed with gratitude. To this day, that's one of the nicest things that anyone has ever done for me. That is, that was a, an unexpected gift, and those, those are some dear friends, and they left quickly, and I remember just standing there just amazed at their generosity. Are you ever overcome with gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? Are there certain passages of the Scripture that elicit that response of gratitude? Are there certain songs that when you sing them, that when we sing them together, you find tears welling up? I, 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 for some reason, we sang um, All Creatures of Our God and King last week, and for some reason, every time we get to the last verse of that song, I, I can hardly get the words out because I'm just so ready to go to heaven. If you're looking to linger over God's promises, I would commend to you Ephesians chapter 2. If you're sitting there to, right now and you're thinking, no, I never do just sit in the, prom the presence of God and consider his promises. Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated him, us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so, you see, that passage has a similar progression to David's prayer. I was, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Oh God, who am I? Who am I that you would come and take a person who was dead in his trespasses and sins and then that you would make me alive in Christ? Who am I, O oh God? 
catch that last phrase, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Wow. I don't think we give these things enough thought. And so, like David, I think we would be totally justified in sometimes just going in and sitting before the Lord and saying, why me? And so I want to exhort you this morning to spend time in God's presence with humility and wonder. Read the Bible slowly and let your heart exclaim, who am I, O Lord? And I would even say, if you, if you have a hard time with that impulse, if you are, are wondering where to begin, find a brother and sister, a brother or sister who, who knows the Lord, and let us help you. Let us lead you to some passages that you can read and just enjoy the goodness of God. Secondly, David's prayer is rooted in God's revelation. Okay, so first and foremost, I just want to say another amazing thing is that God has spoken to his people at all, right? Like, it's amazing that God has spoken to us. He did not have to do that. God did not have to reveal his plan to us. He's certainly not obliged to tell us every, anything, but he does. So look at verse 19. David says, Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the key phrase here. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So we were watching a documentary last week. This is going to make you think we're real nerds. But we were watching a documentary last week about Lady Jane Grey, the first queen of England who ruled for nine days. So we just got a new gray kitty because that's what I needed was another cat in my life. And so she's a gray kitty, so we've decided to name her Lady Jane Grey. Um, so in this uh, documentary, I guess we were just doing research into cat names, um, we discovered that, that, that there's these documents, there's these 500-year-old documents uh, from Lady Jane Grey herself and from Edward VI, her predecessor, and they're written in their own hands. And so the, the, the historian, the documentarianist, just goes into this building and she opens up this book and there are, the, there are the documents right there. It's like, wow, written by Jane and written by Edward. And you can see that Edward, he was 15 years old and it looks like a 15-year-old wrote this very, very important document. But they're, they're curiosities, Right? I mean, it's just a curiosity. To, wow, that, wow, she really wrote that. Like, that's really cool, and it still exists. For the vast majority of people on earth today, the words spoken by God in 2 Samuel 7 are probably of even less interest than those documents written by Jane and Edward in 1550. Because who cares about some promises made to an ancient dead king? We all should, because these are the words of God. David says in verse 19, he says, this is instruction for mankind. This isn't just important to David. It is to be considered, it is to be studied, it is to be contemplated by mankind for generations to come, because this promise pertains to human destiny. The church is full of people today who do not find these promises worth their time, because to them, this is not practical. So, you'll often hear people, you know, how can you distill this? You know, I just want, I just want five principles to a happy marriage. Oh, give me four steps to godly leadership. This isn't practical, but this passage 
contains an immensely important promise. It was a promise to a specific man about the future of the government in this world. And 3,000 years later, we know more than David did because we know about Jesus Christ and we know that he has come but we still await its ultimate fulfillment. And so it is worthwhile for us to remember this promise and both to stand on it and to pray to God, Lord, make this, make this a reality. If you're like me, you're probably dreading 2024. As politics, I used, I used to love politics, and now I, I hate politics. And it seems like this battle between two wicked armies, and it's getting harder and harder for me to get excited about anybody. And soon it's going to be time for us to prepare our hearts in earnest for what will almost certainly be a very tumultuous time. But what if we were promised that there's going to be a leader who is going to bring peace, and he is going to govern with justice and fairness and mercy, and he is going to make wise decisions, and he is going to seek the good of others. Now, of course, I'm not saying that anybody's making that promise about whoever's going to win the 2024 election. But... The Davidic covenant speaks of our desire. There is something in all of us, especially us here, I hope, that says we want a righteous leader. And so Isaiah then, building on that promise, a, a passage that we often read at Christmas, says there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, I can deep dive into politics, and I have unfortunately, and I can get my heart tied up in knots, or I can read the promises of God, sit in his presence, and at least enjoy the fact that God has a plan, which seems like a far better use of my time. One pastor called it the educating power of God's sovereign love. I like that. The educating power of God's sovereign love. David says in verse 21, according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. To make your servant know it. The educating power of God's heart. According to God's heart, and because of his love for us, he has brought about all of this greatness, and he has told us, and it is so precious that he has let us know so if you don't have time to deep dive in God's promises, you're saying essentially, I don't have time for those things that the heart of God has revealed. David's prayer is rooted in God's revelation. I would just ask you, how well do you know these promises? They're really important promises. By the way, we're meeting tonight and during the summer. We're going to meet. We're going to go through some of these Old Testament prophets and some of these promises, some of these places in the Bible that seem very obscure. If you want to learn more about these promises, start by joining us to read through the Bible together. Third, David prays that God would make good on his promise. Okay, so 
this at first may be surprising. Why would we ask God to keep his promises? So think about it like this. If you've ever told a child, later this week we're going to go get ice cream after dinner. When you get home from school, we will play this together. Later this weekend, we will do this together. Have you ever had a child or known a child that would just hear that and be like, I guess I've just got to wait. I'm going to wait silently. No. I mean, like at our house, I mean, we have a couple of people who make like an industry of like, when are we going to do that? When are we going to do that? How soon are we going to do that? When is it going to happen? Can I add this to the promise? What if we did this instead? They remind you over and over and over again. And here's the good news. God, our Father, actually wants us to remind him of his promises. I read this verse to you from Isaiah last week, Isaiah 62, 7. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. Do you have a child who gives you no rest and puts you in remembrance of the promises that you have made? Here's the good news. Our Father in heaven is not even annoyed by that. He wants us to do that. And so David says in verse 25, And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. One commentator said, The act of giving an order to God should not be viewed as irreverent. On the contrary, it is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. If we want to be a faithful people, it is an act of faith to remind God of his promises. Why? Because it means we know the promises which not a lot of people do, and it means that we trust those promises. And so just to be clear, it's not that we're saying, God, will you really keep your promise? It's that we're saying, God, please come and do what you're going to do and do it soon. This is reflected in that cry, come, Lord Jesus. Many professing Christians, I would argue, are ignoring the promises of God. And we're reaping the benefits of that in our society, a society that is filled with fear and anxiety and depression. And on the other hand, they don't know the promises. The words of Scripture are not worth their time. And when difficulty comes, they have no place to go. And, and so we have a generation of people who can't get out of bed because they feel hopeless. I, 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 some of you probably know that Pastor Tim Keller passed away last week and he was a pastor in, in, in New York and has been a, a pretty important figure in, in evangelicalism over the last couple of decades. I did watch a video from him, though. Somebody posted a video, and, and somebody had asked him about his cancer diagnosis, so he, he died of pancreatic cancer. And he, he just, the way he said it was very, it was very meaningful to me because he said his wife Kathy and he, he, he described that they were crying one night. They were crying over the diagnosis and what was happening, and he said at some point he just stopped and he said, you know, if Jesus has really risen from the dead, and we believe he is, then it's all going to be okay. And he said there was a moment of hope in that. And then he said they went back to crying. But that, that statement is very reflective of the very thing that we're talking about. If Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and I believe he is, and if he is coming again, and I believe he is, then everything is going to be okay. Isn't it worth making ourselves aware of those promises. Number four, the promises of God gave David courage to pray. He says in verse 27, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage 
to pray this prayer to you. I, I'll confess to you, there are times when, when, when even some of you come to me and you bring me a prayer request, and I, I don't know what to pray. And we've talked about the limitations of God's wisdom. We talked about that related to, to Nathan and how David said, I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan was like, yeah, sure, go build God a house. And God was like, no, don't do that. And so sometimes comes, uh, to, so someone comes to me with a, with a, a request for prayer, and I, I genuinely want to go beyond what we might call just be with prayer, you know, be with so-and-so. Like, God, I mean, we can pray that. He's already promised he's going to be with them. That's fine as far as he goes. But the scriptures do give us the courage to pray, to pray real things. There was a book, it's been very important to me, I would recommend it to you. It's a, it's a book called a Call to Spiritual Revela- uh, Reformation. It's by D.A. Carson. It's, it's an exposition of the prayers of Paul, and I, w- I would just commend to you one of those prayers. I, w- I would recommend that book to you, and I would commend to you one of these prayers in Colossians chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. Let's, let's look at this together. So, so what we're talking about here is actually like having the courage to pray, using the promises, using the prayers of the Scripture so that we actually have something. When somebody comes to us and says, pray for me, that we actually have something to pray. So Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light." I mean, what if when somebody comes and says to you, I need you to pray for me, I'm going through this difficulty, I'm experiencing this thing, we're trying to make this decision. I mean, what if you could say, all right, well, let's bow our heads right now, I'm going to get out my phone, and I'm going to open to Colossians 1, 9, and I'm just going to insert that person's name right here. I'm going to pray for you that you would be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I think there is courage in praying the words of God. I think there is help to be found in having the prayers of the saints of old and the promises of God so much a part of us that that's just what bleeds out of us when somebody calls and says, would you pray for me? I've mentioned before, there's a prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 that Paul prays for the Ephesian church that I pray for Hope Bible Church almost every day that we would all comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge that we might be filled up to all glory in him. I pray that for you guys. I mean, there's a lot of worse things I could pray than that. And, and I would submit, I will hope that you would pray the same for me. We have courage to pray for healing because God has promised us new bodies. God may heal. God can heal. God may heal us right now, but I know for every single person in this room, he will heal us all eventually. I have courage to pray for provision. I have courage to pray for the things that I need because God has said he will give me everything that I need. And you don't have to wonder if God hears your prayers. Psalm 145, I read this this morning. 
The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him, and he hears their cry and saves them. So because of God's promises, we have courage to pray. Fifth, the promises of God are confirmed by the things God has done. David says in verses 24 and 25, And you have established yourself for your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God, and now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. He says, you have established your, your people forever. You have fulfilled your promise to Abraham. You have brought your people out of Egypt. You defeated Pharaoh and the Egyptians' gods. Okay? So, Yahweh, you are a great God. You have always done what you have said you were going to do in the past. Now fulfill the promises that you have promised, both now and in the future. You know that Jesus Christ has saved you. Therefore, you can pray that he will come again and take you to be with him. You know that he has forgiven you of your sins, therefore you can pray that he will cleanse you from your sins. Because he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know we've been forgiven, we await cleansing. You know that Jesus is raised from the dead. You can know that he will raise you from the dead. Number six, the promises of God lead us to know what is true. 2 Samuel 7, 28, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. I'm, I'm landing here. We've got one more point that will kind of lead us into the Lord's Supper, but I'm landing here because I think this is especially important, and I, I, I want you to think about this. That expression, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, it, it doesn't really work anymore because uh, it's getting really hard to know what's true. Uh, I, you know, I saw, I saw something this week that there was a, a video that went, went around of, of the Pentagon blowing up, and people were like, they bombed the Pentagon, but it was all a fake. It was all made up. I've, I've seen these videos online of famous people speaking, and it looks just like them, and it sounds just like them, but it's not them. It's, it's, it's made up by a computer. And then there's the fact that we can read two articles about an event, and we can read two entirely different perspectives, and, and I don't know what's true. I don't know what's really happening. And over and over again, God's word says, this is true. David says, your words are true. Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. So let me ask you, where does it make sense for us to be investing our time? Do you know that C.S. Lewis never read the newspaper? He never read the newspaper. He said, if anything really important happens, somebody will tell me about it. I don't have time for that. I, I, I kind of think that, that we would stand to, to maybe take a similar stance? Not that you read the newspaper. Everybody has this inside source of information these days, you know, some blog or some YouTube channel that you watch that promises that you'll really know what's going on. And I would tend to think that we would all be better off if we just left that stuff alone. They don't know what's going to happen. Why not set our hearts in the one who does? And he will take care of us because he has promised to take care of us. Point number seven this week, there is another covenant. There's another covenant. So I mentioned to you there are these three major unconditional covenants in the Bible, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, and then there's this other covenant called the new covenant. What do you know about the new covenant? 
Let me read you this passage. You're going to recognize this passage. This is probably the passage that we read the most in this church. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So every week we celebrate this covenant called the new covenant. Where do we find this covenant? What is the new covenant? The new covenant is the promise that God will forgive sin and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are turned from him. And Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant, and his death on the cross is the basis of that promise. Do you know where we find promises of the new covenant? We find promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, the day will come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel 36, deep in the bowels of the prophets, Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So Jesus came to establish the new covenant. He said it was in his blood. He shed his blood on the cross to take away the sins of the world and to establish a new covenant between us and God. And let me tell you something, if that just sounds like dry, boring theology to you, you're missing it. You're missing so much. A new heart and God's dwelling within us means that we will not just be able to obey God, but that we will want to. And it means the end of conflict and suffering and death. The new covenant says that if you believe in Jesus as God, he will do these things in you. The new covenant is real, and just like Pastor Keller said, if you believe it, everything is going to be all right. And if that's not a comfort for you somewhere in your heart, then I have to say, you may not be a Christian because you don't have faith. And faith says, we believe these things and we rejoice in these things. We may have to believe these things while we're in tears and we may speak those things to one another and we may go back to being in tears. But somewhere in our hearts, it causes us to rejoice to know that Jesus is going to return and everything is going to be all right. Brothers and sisters, it is time for us to stop playing around with stuff that isn't true and focus on the things that are. So on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took that cup and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so we're going to do that now. 
Uh, We do this every single week together because we want to celebrate together that new covenant. It's so in a sense what we're learning here as we look at the Davidic covenant is we are seeing that these covenants that are so important in the scripture we actually, it turns out, we celebrate one of those covenants every single week. And, and if this is the first time maybe that you've put two and two together, praise God, and, and, and maybe this will have a different meaning to you as we take this, this little piece of bread and this little cup together this morning. So if you're here this morning, if you're visiting with us, we would invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are more than welcome to partake in this celebration of the new covenant with us. But if you don't know Jesus, and if all the things that I've been saying don't entirely make sense to you yet, but you would like to know more, I would just ask you to refrain. Don't don't take this morning, but come and find me or Tyler or Jay, one of the other elders here, and we would love to tell you so that next week you might could join us and partake in this celebration and understand what it is that you are really celebrating. So uh, the brothers and sisters are going to hand out the cup and the bread in just a moment. Hang on to it. I'm going to come back up. I'm going to read that same passage one more time, and then we will uh, partake together after that.